Chapter Two, Part One, of Thirty Years a Slave, from Bondage to Freedom, the Institution of Slavery as Seen on the Plantation and in the Home of the Planter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Thirty Years a Slave from bondage to freedom the institution of slavery as seen on the plantation and in the home of the planter by lewis hughes chapter two part one social and other aspects of slavery removal to memphis tennessee mcgee had decided to build a new house upon the property which he had purchased at memphis and in august eighteen fifty he sent twenty-five of his slaves to the city to make brick for the structure and i went along as cook after the bricks were burned the work of clearing the ground for the buildings was commenced there were many large and beautiful trees that had to be taken up and removed and when this work was completed the excavations for the foundations and the cellar were undertaken all of this work was done by the slaves. The site was a beautiful one, embracing fourteen acres, situated two miles southeast from the city, on the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. The road ran in front of the place, and the boss built a flag station there, for the accommodation of himself and his neighbors, which was named McGee Station. A NEW AND SPLENDID HOUSE the house was one of the most pretentious in that region, and was a year and a half in building. It was two stories in height, and built of brick, the exterior surface being coated with cement and marked off in blocks, about two feet square, to represent stone. It was then whitewashed. There was a veranda in front with six large columns, and above a balcony. On the back there were also a veranda and a balcony, extending across that end to the servant's wing. A large hall led from front to rear, on one side of which were double parlors, and on the other a sitting-room, a bedroom, and a dining-room. In the second story were a hall and four rooms, similar in all respects to those below, and above these was a large attic. The interior woodwork was of black walnut, the walls were white, and the centerpieces in the ceilings of all the rooms were very fine, being the work of an English artisan who had been only a short time in this country. This work was so superior in design and finish to anything before seen in that region that local artisans were much excited over it, and some offered to purchase the right to produce it but boss refused the offer however someone while the house was finishing helped himself to the design and it was reproduced in whole or in part in other buildings in the city this employment of a foreign artist was unusual there and caused much comment the parlors were furnished with mahogany sets the upholstering being in red brocade satin the dining-room was also furnished in mahogany. The bedrooms had mahogany bedsteads of the old-fashioned pattern with canopies, 
costly bric-a-brac which boss and the madam had purchased while travelling in foreign countries was in great profusion money was no object to edmund mcgee and he added every modern improvement and luxury to his home the decorations and furnishings were throughout the most costly and elegant and in the whole of tennessee there was not a mansion more sumptuously complete in all its appointments or more palatial in its general appearance when all was finished pictures bric-a-brac statuary and flowers all in their places mrs mcgee was brought home in this new house boss opened up in grand style everything was changed and the family entered upon a new more formal and more pretentious manner of living i was known no longer as errand boy but installed as butler and body-servant to my master i had the same routine of morning work only it was more extensive there was a great deal to be done in so spacious a mansion looking after the parlors halls and dining-rooms arranging flowers in the rooms waiting on the table and going after the mail was my regular morning work the year round then there were my duties to perform night and morning for my master these were to brush his clothes black his shoes assist him to arrange his toilet and do any little thing that he wanted me to aside from these regular duties there were windows to wash silver to polish and steps to stone on certain days in the week i was called to do any errand necessary and sometimes to assist in the garden a new staff of house servants was installed as follows aunt delia cook louisa chambermaid puss ladies maid to wait on the madam celia nurse lethia wet nurse sarah dairymaid julia laundress uncle gooden gardener thomas coachman the new style of living the servants at first were dazed with the splendor of the new house and laughed and chuckled to themselves a good deal about ma's fine house and really seemed pleased for strange to say the slaves of rich people always rejoiced in that fact a servant owned by a man in moderate circumstances was hooted at by rich men's slaves it was common for them to say oh don't mind that darky he belongs to poor white trash so as i said our slaves rejoiced in master's good luck each of the women servants wore a new gay-colored turban which was tied differently from that of the ordinary servant in some fancy knot their frocks and aprons were new and really the servants themselves looked new my outfit was a new cloth suit and my aprons for wearing when waiting on the table were of snowy white linen the style being copied from that of the new york waiters i felt big for i never knew what a white bosom shirt was before and even though the grief at the separation from my dear mother was almost unbearable at times and my sense of loneliness in having no relative near me often made me sad there was consolation if not compensation in this little change i had known no comforts and had been so cowed and broken in spirits by cruel lashings 
that I really felt light-hearted at this improvement in my personal appearance, although it was merely for the gratification of my master's pride, and I thought I would do all I could to please Boss. THE ADORNMENT OF THE GROUNDS For some time before all the appointments of the new home were completed, a great number of mechanics and workmen, besides our own servants, were employed, and there was much bustle and stir about the premises. Considerable outdoor work was yet to be done, fences to be made, gardens and orchards to be arranged and planted, and the grounds about the house to be laid out and adorned with shrubbery and flower-beds. When this work was finally accomplished, the grounds were indeed beautiful. The walks were graveled and led through a profusion of shrubbery and flower-beds. There was almost every variety of roses, while scattered over the grounds there were spruce, pine, and juniper trees, and some rare varieties seldom seen in this northern climate. Around the grounds was set a cedar hedge, and in time the place became noted for the beauty of its shrubbery. The roses especially were marvelous in the richness and variety of their colors, their fragrance, and the luxuriousness of their growth. People who have never traveled in the South have little idea of the richness and profusion of its flowers, especially of its roses. Among the climbing plants which adorned the house, the most beautiful and fragrant was the African honeysuckle. Its order was indeed delightful. THE GARDEN one of the institutions of the place was the vegetable garden. This was established not only for the convenience and comfort of the family, but to furnish employment for the slaves. Under the care of Uncle Gooden, the gardener, it flourished greatly, and there was so much more produced than the family could use, Boss concluded to sell the surplus. The gardener, therefore, went to the city every morning with a load of vegetables, which brought from eight to ten dollars daily, and this the madam took for pen money. In the spring I had always to help the gardener in setting out plants and preparing beds. And as this was in connection with my other work, I became so tired sometimes that I could hardly stand. All the vegetables raised were fine, and at that time brought a good price. The first cabbage that we sold in the markets brought twenty-five cents a head. The first sweet potatoes marketed always brought a dollar a peck, or four dollars a bushel. The Memphis market regulations required that all vegetables be washed before being exposed for sale. Corn was husked, and everything was clean and inviting. Anyone found guilty of selling or exhibiting for sale vegetables of a previous day was fined at once by the market master. This rule was carried out to the letter. Nothing stale could be sold, or even come into market. The rules required that all poultry be dressed before being brought to the market. The entrails were cleaned and strung and sold separately, usually for about ten cents a string. Profusion of Flowers Flowers grew in profusion everywhere through the South, and it has properly been called the land of flowers. But flowers had no such sale there as have our flowers here in the north. The pansy and many of our highly prized plants and flowers 
grew wild in the south the people there did not seem to care for flowers as we do i have sold many bouquets for a dime and very beautiful ones for fifteen and twenty cents that would sell in the north for fifty to seventy-five cents the fruit orchard the new place had an orchard of about four acres consisting of a variety of apple peach pear and plum trees boss hired an expert gardener to teach me the art of grafting and after some practice i became quite skilled in this work some of the pear trees that had been grafted had three different kinds of fruit on them and others had three kinds of apples on them besides the pears this grafting i did myself and the trees were considered very fine by boss another part of my work was the trimming of the hedge and the care of all the shrubbery i practice medicine among the slaves mcgee had a medicine chest built into the wall of the new house the shelves for medicine were of wood and the arrangement was very convenient it was really a small drug store it contained everything in the way of drugs that was necessary to use in doctoring the slaves we had quinine castor oil alcohol and ipecac in great quantities as these were the principal drugs used in the limited practice in the home establishment if a servant came from the field to the house with a chill which was frequent the first thing we did was to give him a dose of ipecac to vomit him on the evening after we would give him two or three of cook's pills these pills we made at home i always had to prepare the medicines and give the dose the boss standing by dictating working with medicine giving it and caring for the sick were the parts of my work that i liked best boss used dr gunn's book altogether for recipes in putting up medicines he read me the recipe while i compounded it a swell reception in celebration of the opening of the new house mcgee gave an elaborate reception and dinner the menu embraced nearly everything that one could think of or desire and all in the greatest profusion it was a custom not only with the mcgees but among the southern people generally to make much of eating it was one of their hobbies everything was cooked well and highly seasoned scarcity was foreign to the homes of the wealthy southerners relatives visit at the mansion after the family had been settled about a month in the new home their relatives in panola county mississippi mr jack mcgee known among the servants as old jack mrs melinda mcgee his wife mrs farrington their daughter who was a widow and their other children louisa ella and william all came up for a visit and to see the wonderful house mr jack mcgee was the father of madam and the uncle of boss my master and mistress were therefore first cousins and boss sometimes called the old man father and at other times uncle old master jack as he alighted said to those behind him now be careful step lightly louisa this is the finest house you ever set foot in when all had come into the house and the old man had begun to look around he said i don't know what edmund is thinking about out to build such a house house 
he was very old and had never lost all of his scotch dialect and he had a habit of repeating a part or all of some words as in the foregoing quotation the other members of the visiting family were well pleased with the house and said it was grand they laughed and talked merrily over the many novel things which they saw mrs farrington who was a gay widow was naturally interested in everything i busied myself waiting upon them and it was late that night before i was through so many made extra work for me one of the visitors distrusts me the next morning after breakfast boss and old master jack went out to view the grounds they took me along so that if anything was wanted i could do it boss would have me drive a stake in some place to mark where he desired to put something perhaps some flowers or a tree he went on through the grounds showing his father how everything was to be arranged the old man shook his head and said well it's good but i'm afraid you'll spoil these niggers niggers keep your eye on that boy lou meaning me he is slippery slippery too smart art oh i'll manage that father said boss well see that you do oo for i see running away in his eyes one of the things that interested old master jack was the ringing of the dinner bell well i do think said the old man that boy can ring a bell better than anybody i ever heard why it's got a regular tune i used to try to see how near i could come to making it say come to dinner the madam in a rage the four days soon passed and all the company gone we were once more at our regular work delia the cook seemingly had not pleased the madam in her cooking while the company were there so the morning after they left she went toward the kitchen calling delia 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 said Dah, i wonder what she wants now by this time she was in the kitchen confronting delia her face was flushed as she screamed out what kind of biscuits were those you baked this week i think they were all right miss sarah hush screamed out the madam stamping her foot to make it more emphatic you did not half cook them said she they were not beat enough those waffles were ridiculous said the madam well miss sarah i tried stop cried madam in a rage i'll give you thunder if you dictate to me not a very elegant display in language or manner for a great lady old aunt delia who was used to these occurrences said my lord that woman don't know what she wants ah lou there is nothing but the devil up here meaning the new home can't do nothing to please her up here in this fine house i tell you satan never get his own till he get her they did not use baking powder as we do now but the biscuits were beaten until light enough twenty minutes was the time allotted for this work but when company came there was so much to be done so many more dishes to prepare that delia would perhaps not have so much time for each meal but there was no allowance made 
it was never thought reasonable that a servant should make a mistake. Things must always be the same. I was listening to this quarrel between Madame and Delia, supposing my time would come next. But for that once she said nothing to me. THE MADAM'S SEVERITY Mrs. McGee was naturally irritable. Servants always got an extra whipping when she had any personal trouble, as though they could help it. Every morning, little Kate, Aunt Delia's little girl, would have to go with the madam on her rounds to the different buildings of the establishment to carry the key basket. So many were the keys that they were kept in a basket especially provided for them, and the child was its regular bearer. The madam, with this little attendant, was everywhere, in the barn, in the hennery, in the smoke-house, and she always made trouble with the servants wherever she went. Indeed, she rarely returned to the house from these rounds without having whipped two or three servants, whether there was really any cause for the punishment or not. She seldom let a day pass without beating some poor woman unmercifully. The number and severity of these whippings depended more upon the humor of the madam than upon the conduct of the slaves. Of course, I always came in for a share in this brutal treatment. She continued her old habit of boxing my jaws, pinching my ears, no day ever passing without her indulging in this exercise of her physical powers. So long had I endured this, I came to expect it, no matter how well I did my duties, and it had its natural effect upon me, making me a coward, even though I was now growing into manhood. I remember once, in particular, when I had tried to please her by arranging the parlor. I overheard her say, "'They soon get spirit. It don't do to praise servants.' My heart sank within me. What good was it for me to try to please? She would find fault anyway. Her usual morning greeting was, "'Well, Lou, have you dusted the parlors?' "'Oh, yes,' I would answer. "'Have the flowers been arranged?' "'Yes, all is in readiness,' I would say. Once I had stoned the steps as usual, but the madam grew angry as soon as she saw them. I had labored hard and thought she would be pleased. The result, however, was very far from that. She took me out, stripped me of my shirt, and began thrashing me, saying I was spoiled.' I was no longer a child, but old enough to be treated differently. I began to cry, for it seemed to me my heart would break. But after the first burst of tears, the feeling came over me that I was a man, and it was an outrage to treat me so, to keep me under the lash day after day. A SHOCKING ACCIDENT not long after Mrs. Farrington had made her first visit to our house, she came there to live. Celia had been acting as her maid. When Mrs. Farrington had been up some months, it was decided that all the family should go down to old Master Jack's for a visit. Celia, the maid, had been so hurried in the preparations for this visit that she had done nothing for herself. The night before the family was to leave, therefore, she was getting ready a garment for herself to wear on the trip, and it was supposed that she sewed until midnight or after, when she fell asleep, letting the goods fall into the candle. 
All at once, a little after twelve o'clock, I heard a scream, then a cry of, Fire! Fire! And Boss yelling, Lewis! Lewis! I jumped up, throwing an old coat over me, and ran upstairs in the direction of Mrs. Farrington's room. I encountered Boss in the hall, and, as it was dark and the smoke stifling, I could hardly make any headway. At this moment Mrs. Farrington threw her door open and screamed for Cousin Eddie, meaning McGee. He hurriedly called to me to get a pitcher of water quick. I grasped the pitcher from the stand, and he attempted to throw the water on Celia, who was all in a blaze, running around like a madwoman. But the pitcher slipped from his hand and broke, very little of the water reaching her. She was at last wrapped in an old blanket to extinguish the flames, but she was burned too badly to recover. Boss, being a physician, said at once, Poor girl, poor girl, she is burned to death. He did all he could for her, wrapped her in linen sheets, and endeavored to relieve her sufferings. But all was of no avail. She had inhaled the flame, injuring her internally, and lived only a few days. Master's New Cotton Plantation Shortly after Boss bought his home in Memphis, he bought a large farm in Bolivar, Mississippi. It was a regular cotton farm on the Mississippi River, embracing two hundred acres. The houses built for the slaves were frame, eighteen in number, each to contain three or four families, and arranged on each side of a street that ran through the farm. This street was all grassed over, but there were no sidewalks. All the buildings, the barn, gin house, slaves' quarters, and overseer's house, were whitewashed, and on this grass-grown street they made a neat and pretty appearance. The house where the boss and the madam stayed, when they went down to the farm, was about two hundred yards from the slaves' quarters. It was arranged in two apartments, one for the overseer and wife, and the other for the master and mistress upon the occasion of their visits. This building was separated from the other buildings by a fence. There was what was called the cook-house, where was cooked all the food for the hands. Aunt Matilda was cook in charge. Besides the buildings already named, there were stables, a blacksmith's shop and sawmill, and the general order of arrangement was carried out with respect to all. The appearance was that of a village. Everything was raised in abundance, to last from one crop to the next. Vegetables and meat were provided from the farm, and a dairy of fifty cows furnished all the milk and butter needed. The cane brakes were so heavy that it was common for bears to hide there, and at night come out and carry off hogs. Wolves were plenty in the woods behind the farm, and could be heard at any time. The cane was so thick that when they were clearing up new ground, it would have to be set on fire, and the cracking that would ensue was like the continuous explosion of small firecrackers. About one hundred and sixty slaves, besides children, all owned by McGee, were worked on the farm. Instead of ginning two or three bales of cotton a day, as at Pontotoc, they ginned six to seven bales here. INCIDENTS 
I remember well the time when the great Swedish singer Jenny Lind came to Memphis. It was during her famous tour through America in 1851. Our folks were all enthused over her. Boss went in and secured tickets to her concert, and I was summoned to drive them to the hall. It was a great event. People swarmed the streets like bees. The carriages and hacks were stacked back from the hall as far as the eye could reach. On another occasion, when the great prodigy Blind Tom came to Memphis, there was a similar stir among the people. Tom was very young then, and he was called the Blind Boy. People came from far and near to hear him. Those coming from the villages and small towns, who could not get passage on the regular trains, came in freight or on flat-bottom cars. The tickets were five dollars each, as I remember. Boss said it was expensive, but all must hear this boy pianist. Many were the comments on this boy of such wonderful talents. As I drove our people home, they seemed to talk of nothing else. They declared that he was indeed a wonder. LONGING FOR FREEDOM Sometimes when the farmhands were at work, peddlers would come along, and as they were treated badly by the rich planters, they hated them, and talked to the slaves in a way to excite them and set them thinking of freedom. They would say encouragingly to them, Ah, you will be free some day. But the downtrodden slaves, some of whom were bowed with age, with frosted hair and furrowed cheek, would answer, looking up from their work, We don't believe that. My grandfather said we was to be free, but we ain't free yet. It had been talked of, this freedom, from generation to generation. Perhaps they would not have thought of freedom if their owners had not been so cruel. Had my mistress been more kind to me, I should have thought less of liberty. I know the cruel treatment which I received was the main thing that made me wish to be free. Besides this, it was inhuman to separate families as they did. Think of a mother being sold from all her children, separated for life. This separation was common, and many died heartbroken by reason of it. Ah, I cannot forget the cruel separation from my mother. I know not what became of her, but I have always believed her dead many years ago. Hundreds were separated, as my mother and I were, and never met again. Though freedom was yearned for by some because the treatment was so bad, others, who were bright and had looked into the matter, knew it was a curse to be held a slave. They longed to stand out in true manhood, allowed to express their opinions, as were white men. Others still desired freedom, thinking they could then reclaim a wife, or husband, or children. The mother would again see her child. All these promptings of the heart made them yearn for freedom. New Year's was always a heart-rending time, for it was then the slaves were bought and sold, and they stood in constant fear of losing someone dear to them, a child, a husband, or wife. My First Break for Freedom in the new home, my duties were harder than ever. The McGees held me with tighter grip, and it was nothing but cruel abuse from morning till night. So I made up my mind to try and run away to a free country. 
I used to hear Boss read sometimes in the papers about runaway slaves who had gone to Canada, and it always made me long to go. Yet I never appeared as if I paid the slightest attention to what the family read or said on such matters. But I felt that I could be like others, and try at least to get away. One morning, when Boss had gone to town, Madame had threatened to whip me and told me to come to the house. When she called me I did not go, but went off down through the garden and through the woods, and made my way for the city. When I got into Memphis I found at the landing a boat called the Statesman, and I sneaked aboard. It was not expected that the boat would stay more than a few hours, but for some reason it stayed all night. The boat was loaded with sugar, and I hid myself behind four hogsheads. I could see both engineers, one each side of me. When night came on, I crept out from my hiding place and went forward to search for food and water, for I was thirsty and very hungry. I found the table where the deckhands had been eating and managed to get a little food, left from their meal, and some water. This was by no means enough, but I had to be content and went back to my place of concealment. I had been on board the boat three days, and on the third night, when I came out to hunt food, the second mate saw me. In a minute he eyed me over and said, Why, I have a reward for you. In a second he had me go upstairs to the captain. This raised a great excitement among the passengers, and in a minute I was besieged with numerous questions. Some spoke as if they were sorry for me, and said if they had known I was a poor runaway slave they would have slipped me ashore. The whole boat was in alarm. It seemed to me they were consulting slips of paper. One said, Yes, he is the same. Listen how this reads. Ran away from Edmund McGee, my mulatto boy Lewis, five feet six inches in height, black hair, is very bright and intelligent. We'll give five hundred dollars for him alive, and half of this amount for knowledge that he has been killed. My heart sprang into my throat when I heard two men read this advertisement. I knew at once what it all meant, remembering how often I had heard Boss read such articles from the papers and from the handbills that were distributed through the city. The captain asked me if I could dance. It seemed he felt sorry for me, for he said, That's a bright boy to be a slave. Then, turning to me, he said, Come, give us a dance. I was young and nimble, so I danced a few of the old southern clog dances and sang one or two songs, like this. Come along, Sam, the Pfeiffer's son. Ain't you mighty glad your day's work's done? After I finished singing and dancing, the captain took up a collection for me and got about two dollars. This cheered me a good deal. I knew that I would need money if I should ever succeed in getting on. On the following evening, when we reached West Franklin, Indiana, while the passengers were at tea, another boat pushed into port right after ours. Immediately a gentleman passenger came to me hurriedly and whispered to me to go downstairs, jump out on the bow of the other boat, and go ashore. I was alarmed, but obeyed, for I felt that he was a friend to slaves. 
I went out as quickly as I could, and was not missed until I had gotten on shore. Then I heard the alarm given that the boy was gone, that the runaway was gone. But I sped on, and did not stop until I had run through the village, and had come to a road that led right into the country. I took this road and went on until I had gone four or five miles, when I came to a farmhouse. Before reaching it, however, I met two men on horseback, on their way to the village. They passed on without specially noticing me, and I kept on my way until reaching the farmhouse. I was so hungry, I went in and asked for food. While I was eating, the men whom I had met rode up. They had been to the village, and, learning that a runaway slave was wanted, and remembering meeting me, they returned in hot haste, in hope of finding me and securing the reward. They hallooed to the people in the house, an old woman and her daughter, whom they seemed to know, saying, There was a runaway nigger out who stole off a boat this evening. The old lady said, Come, becoming frightened at once. When they came in, they began to question me. I trembled all over, but answered them. They said, You are the fellow we want, who ran off the boat. I was too scared to deny it, so I owned I was on the boat, and stole off. They did not tarry long, but, taking me with them, they went about a mile and a half to their house. They planned and talked all the way, and one said, We are good for seventy-five dollars for him, anyway. The next morning they took me into the village. They soon found out that the engineer, by order of the captain, had stayed over to search for me. A lawsuit followed, and I was taken before the magistrate before the engineer could get possession of me. There was a legal course that had to be gone through with. A lawyer, Fox by name, furnished the seventy-five dollars for the men who had caught me. That part of the case being settled, Fox and the engineer started for Evansville, Indiana, that same night. Upon arriving there, Fox received from the captain of the boat the money he had advanced to the men who caught me, and we went on, arriving at Louisville, Kentucky, the next day. I was then taken again before a magistrate by the captain, when the following statement was read by that official. Captain Montgomery brought forth a boy, and said he is the property of Edmund McGee of Memphis, Tennessee. Come forth, owner, and prove property, for after the boy shall remain in jail six months, he shall be sold to pay jail feed. Mr. McGee was informed of my whereabouts, and it was not long before he and his cousin came to get me. When they came, I was called up by the nickname they had given me, Memphis. Come out here, Memphis, said the turnkey. Your master has come for you. I went downstairs to the office and found Boss waiting for me. Hello, Lou, said he. What are you doing here, you dog? I was so frightened I said nothing. Of course, some few words were passed between him and the officers. I heard him say that I was a smart fellow, and he could not tell why I had run away, that he had always treated me well. This was to impress the officers with the idea that he was not unkind to his slaves. The slaveholders all hated to be classed as bad taskmasters, yet nearly all of them were. 
the clothes I wore were jail property, and he could not take me away in them, so we started to go uptown to get others. As we passed out, the jailer Buchanan said, "'Ain't you going to put handcuffs on him?' "'Oh, no,' said Boss. After I was taken to the store and fitted with a new suit of clothes, he brought me back to the jail where I washed myself and put on the new garments. When all was complete, and I seemed to suit Master's fastidious eye, he took me to the Galt House, where he was stopping. In the evening we started for home and reached Memphis the following day. Boss did not flog me, as I expected, but sent me to my regular routine work. We had been in this new home so short a time he did not want it to be rumored that he whipped his slaves. He was so stylish and rich. But the madam was filled with rage, although she did not say much. I think they saw that I was no longer a child. They feared I would go again, but after I had been home some three or four weeks, Madame Sarah commenced her old tricks, attempting to whip me, box my jaws and pinch me. If any little thing was not pleasing to her at mealtime, it was a special delight for her to reach out when I drew near to her to pass something, and give me a blow with her hand. Truly, it was a monstrous domestic institution that not only tolerated but fostered such an exhibition of table manners by a would-be fine lady, such vulgar spite and cruelty. End of chapter 2, part 1 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista